One of the most popular trends in our culture right now is people discovering their ancestry uh, through DNA testing. And because of the advances in technology, it's now more accessible and more affordable than ever to do this. And it's common as well for family members to actually pay for the testing, uh, either through a, a Christmas present or a birthday gift or sometimes even an anniversary gift. And all a person has to do is pay one of these DNA testing companies like Ancestry.com, and soon a collection kit arrives at your front door. Then a person gathers a dollop of saliva and ships it uh, in to the, back to the company in the enclosed package. That's it. In a few short weeks, the person then receives access to their data, telling them about their family history, about their origin. And a lot of people I know have gotten their results, and it's fascinating. And at times, it has even been shocking. I have a brother-in-law whose mother believed growing up that she was 100% German. In fact, as a young girl growing up in a small Midwestern town during World War II, she was forbidden by her parents to tell anybody about her ethnicity because she was 100% German. Even though they attended every Sunday and the family had attended for basically a century a German Lutheran church, they didn't want to tell anybody during World War II, that she was German. Well, then, when my brother-in-law's test came back, he was shocked to learn that he wasn't 50% German, like he thought. In fact, he was 28% German and 22% Irish. And this, of course, was very upsetting to his mother, who categorically denied the results of the DNA test until the day she died. And personally, I wish they would have kept the results to themselves until after my mother-in-law had passed instead of upsetting her like that. But nonetheless, knowing history, it's not hard to figure out how someone from Germany could have become uh, Irish. During the potato famines in the 1800s, which actually began in 1845 in Ireland, many were forced to immigrate to other countries, including places like Germania, where they then took on German names and adopted German customs and cultural practices and, and learned the language and even learned to appreciate the foods of that culture, and eventually they ended up intermarrying. Now, I have another close friend who recently discovered his earthly parents his grandparents and his cousins, and he didn't know them because he had been adopted. And all within weeks of getting the test results back, he learned these things from the DNA co company's test. And it turns out that this family had been looking for him for years, but since he'd never taken the test until recently, there was no way for them to find them. And the amazing thing about this man is, who's already middle-aged, professionally, this man excelled at the very same field as his award-winning grandfather did three states away, whom he didn't know until just the past few weeks. In fact, they have the same senses of humor, the same communication styles. It's all the same, and it's absolutely fascinating. Now, the information a person receives on one of these tests breaks down their origin by percentage and region of the world. For example, a person's origin may say 43% East African, 23% Southern European, 11% Western European, and 2% Native American. And for good measure, there's usually 1% unidentified in the mix. All of that 
from one blob of spit. In the case of people not knowing their family histories or origins, it can be helpful for them to discover or as they can learn that if they're maybe susceptible to certain diseases and then take preventative measures long before the general population would. For example, on my wife's side of the family, because there's such a history of cancer, literally other than one person dying from an accident, every funeral we ever attend is somebody who has died from cancer. And specifically, prostate cancer happens to be one of the big cancers in the family among the men. And so males in my wife's family of origin are now getting PSA tests at 35 years of age instead of waiting till 50 like the general population does. Now, I have not gone through the DNA testing yet, and when I do, I'm expecting to find out that I would be 50% Finnish in the 12 to 15% uh, range Swedish, 3 to 4% Native American, and a mixture of other Western European descents. Now, the point of all that I've just shared with you here today is this growing fascination in our culture right now about people's origins. Who am I? Where did I come from? What does my family tree look like? Do I have any branches in the Americas or in Asia or uh, in the Middle East? Or do I have any branches in Europe or in Africa? Here is what we've been learning these past five Sundays in this sermon series, The Perfect Father. Because Jesus hung on that cursed, God-forsaken tree, the cross, each one of us has received an invitation to become part of a brand new family tree. And yes, each one of us still has to participate, and we have to navigate our own earthly family tree. But by faith now, we can be born into a new family tree, by faith in Jesus Christ. A family where God the Father says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, and I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. So how does a person become part of this new family? Jesus says in John chapter 3 that you must be born again. In fact, he told the religious leader in Israel, Nicodemus, in John chapter 3, verse 3, that he would not see the kingdom of God unless he was born again. He's this great religious leader. He's this influencer in the nation of Israel who worships and follows God. And you are not going to see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. To which Nicodemus replies, well, surely a person cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb? How do you have a second birth? I'm an adult. I'm a full-grown male. How in the world do I have a second physical birth? Yes, the notion of a second physical birth does sound crazy, but Jesus wasn't talking about being born again physically. He was talking about a spiritual birth. Because of sin, we are spiritually dead and need a new life in Christ. And when Jesus said you must be born a second time, he wasn't referencing our flesh. He was talking about the Spirit. And no one gets into God's family by trying their best or by being good enough. Likewise, no one gets left out of God's family because they're bad or they do not deserve God's love 
Later in this same chapter, chapter 3, it says in verse 16 and 17, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever would believe in Him would not perish but would have everlasting life. That means God loved the world. That means people. That's what the cosmos is referring to there. All of humanity, sins and all, He loved everybody on this earth. And it says in verse 17 that God didn't send His Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. In Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7, it says the very same thing. Let me read it for you. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might be, receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons. God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are a child, God has made you also an heir. Through faith in Christ, we become children of our heavenly Father. Fully his fully adopted, complete sons and daughters of our perfect, forgiving, heavenly Father. And the only catch here is that we have to receive God's gift of salvation. God won't force His way into our lives, just like our stained glass window outside the sanctuary points out, Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone open the door, and you know, I will come in to them and dine with them and they with me. He's not kicking the door down. He doesn't have the, the police's hammer and running the door down and smashing the door. He's not doing that. He didn't force his way into our lives. You know, he invites us to receive him. He encourages us to invite him to be part of his life. Part of our acceptance, too, is that we confess that we are sinners, that we have fallen short of God's best and accept his forgiveness through the cross. Remember last week's sermon, Luke chapter 23, verse 34, where Jesus hung on the cross? And he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. And that word there, afe, uh, in the Greek language, which comes from afe, me, says, it means, God, send their sins away. Cast their sins away. And that's what Jesus has done for us on the cross. But if we don't appropriate that into our lives, if we don't accept that gracious gift of what he's done for us, then we don't get to live in that forgiveness. That's what happens. Jesus has done it, doesn't force his way into our lives. And if we don't accept it, if we don't receive that gift, we don't get to live in that forgiveness. And John 1.11 says, he came to that which was his own, and his own received him not. Many people didn't accept that. Just like today, many people do not accept that message, that you have to accept this gift of salvation that's in Jesus Christ, this offer of forgiveness, or we don't get to live in that forgiveness. He came to that which was his own, and his own received him not. But the very next verse says, but as many as received him, to them gave he the right to become children of God. The new birth born again, then grafts a person into God's family tree as one of his sons and one of his daughters. Now in Christ, we have the power to completely overcome our past. Our new family tree, through being part of the family of God, then gets superimposed 
over the top of our own earthly family tree. And because of that, we now can live new lives, lives of victory, lives of hope, new lives of promise and of forgiveness and of fulfillment. So, in light of all this, with the short time I have left with you today, I want you to know that our perfect, loving, forgiving, heavenly Father is a faithful Father. What God says He's going to do, God does. What we need most in our lives, God provides. When we don't even know what the best thing is for our lives, God does. And He orchestrates it, even though sometimes we don't understand that completely in this lifetime or, or we don't understand it till later on. God, our faithful Father, is always present in our lives. And as we're going to learn in Matthew 7, verses 7 through 11, He wants us to call upon Him. Look at verses 7 and 8 with me. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And for everyone who uh, asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened to you. Now, if a salesman happens to come to our door, or a tax assessor, or a, now a state septic system inspector, or even a scammer, we are generally not too excited to see them. In fact, we may be inclined to not even open the door or talk to them, just like when telemarketers call. We look at the caller ID, the, you know, and if it's a number we don't recognize, in our household, we don't answer the phone. Basically, we don't invite these people in to take up our time. Uh, our time is valuable, so we're not going to waste our time uh, responding to that. But now if your children or your grandchildren happen to show up at your house, what do you do? You're just like me, I'm sure. You'll drop everything, whatever you're doing, you will drop it in a heartbeat to hang out with them. And if they ask you to do something, or if they need something from you, you will do your best to help provide it for them. And when they knock at your door, you don't give them the cold shoulder or avoid them. You don't ignore them. No, you're delighted to see them. You run out and you hug them. And God wants that kind of relationship with us. He wants us to ask Him for things. He wants us to seek Him out in life. He wants us to knock on the door. In fact, in the original Greek language of this text, it means keep on asking, keep on seeking, and keep on knocking. Now, if the salesman or the telemarketer or the inspector, the assessor, or the scammer keeps hounding us, we don't appreciate that, and we wouldn't appreciate that very much, would we? And even if a friend or a neighbor would do that to us. That would get old pretty quickly. But if our children or our grandchildren are calling on us constantly, I mean, that's a different story. That's a whole completely different story. See, we have a faithful father who's engaged and present in our lives, and he wants to hear from us any time of the day, day or night. He wants us to share our needs, to share our concerns, to bring our burdens to Him, and He will respond. Archbishop William Temple said, when I pray, coincidences happen. And when I stop praying, coincidences stop happening. 
Now, I don't, there's no pun intended here with what I'm going to say about Reverend Temple and what he's describing here as coincidences, but I don't view them as coincidences. I view them as God incidences, incidences from our Heavenly Father who's a faithful God who loves to hear from His children and responds appropriately to their needs. Look at verses 9 and 10 in our text. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a snake. Now, these are rhetorical questions. They answer themselves. When children are hungry, good parents, especially in the Middle East back then, where the staples, the main staples of the diet would have been bread and would have been fish, good parents don't say, hey, here, chew on this rock. That'll, that'll get rid of your hunger. Chew on this rock a little bit. Or, you know what? carve up this snake and get something to eat out of the snake. Good parents don't do that. In fact, the crowd back then in Jesus' incredible sermon here, the Sermon on the Mount from chapter 5 all the way through chapter 7, this great, big, long, incredible sermon of Jesus, they would have completely got this. I think they were sitting there and they probably chuckled. Oh boy, you know. But Jesus still went on to explain further in verse 11. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who uh, love Him and ask Him? Now, the lesson here is obvious. If fallen human earthly parents with a propensity towards sin, which, by the way, did you notice in that verse that Jesus didn't include Himself in this camp? He's using the second person. He's saying you. He doesn't say here we. He's not saying us. He's not saying I, no first person in anything here. He's saying you. Because Jesus was sinless and perfect, he couldn't say that. But he said, if you, with your propensity towards sin, give good things to your children when they need them, how much more will God the Father, the perfect, faithful, heavenly Father, provide for you? Uh, the one who 1 Timothy 6.17 says at the end of the verse, richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. The one who the psalmist talked about in Psalm 37 verse 4 when he said, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Well, maybe you're here today and you're thinking, well, this is all well and good, pastor, but not all earthly fathers give good gifts to their children. In fact, some do hand out rocks, and they do hand out snakes on a regular basis by their abuse of their children and their absence or their rhetoric or their addictions or their bad habits or their criticisms or their lack of love. Some people say, I got lots of rocks and lots of snakes when I was growing up because any time when I was a child and I'd ask for something I needed, I was often denied it, or worse yet, I was made fun of and made out less to be, you know, ridiculed and and made to be less than what my dad thought I should be. On the other hand, there's others who may have grown up with very generous fathers and very generous grandfathers, and this also creates different challenges because it's so easy for these people to find their complete security in their earthly fathers in what their earthly fathers can provide, so they never really have had to learn to truly depend upon God. When G- what Jesus is saying here is that in the normal course of life, 
all things being equal, earthly fathers typically know how to meet their children's need, needs, and they're actually pretty good at it. But how much more will your faithful heavenly Father provide for you? So the encouragement of this passage and of this entire sermon is to try God, is to ask God. And actually, right before this section, if you look back just to the chapter beforehand, in chapter 6, verse 25 through 33, it says the following. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or what your, about your body, what you will wear. Is your not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And you not, are, are you not much more valuable than they? And can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into fire, uh, will he not much more clothe you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. In verse 26, Jesus is making a statement here. Really, it's more of a declaration. He's talking about the birds, how they're taken care of, and they don't put in all the effort to sustain themselves. And flowers, how they're taken care of and how beautiful they are. And same thing, their heavenly Father provides for them. How much more, he says, valuable are you than they are? See, we have a heavenly Father, a faithful heavenly Father who will take care of us. Now remember Psalm 27, verse 10? Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. The last part of that verse, the English Standard Version, says the Lord will take me in. Or the New Living Translation says of that, the Lord will hold me close. Yes, there are a lot of injustices in this world. There's a lot of heartache. And there are people making poor choices every single day that undoubtedly impact the lives of others. But the Bible says we have a faithful heavenly Father who will see us through. And in Revelations 21, 1 through 8, it says one day all things will be made new. The prophet Isaiah said in chapter 60, 61, one day everything will be made right. In Amos chapter 5, verse 24, it says, One day justice will roll on like a river and righteousness like a never-failing stream. Despite all of the pain, all of the loss, and all of the heartache that's in this world, God is greater than all of it. Our perfect heavenly Father is here. He is faithful. He's present in our lives, and He will provide for our every need. Praise be to God. Would you please join me in prayer?
God, our Father, this morning again, as we have been challenged to think anew about you, to uh, think in biblical terms regarding you, because what we think about you is truly the most that when we think of you, God the Father, that your faithfulness would be one of the things that comes to mind for us. And Lord, that we would accept your offer to ask and to seek and to knock, to be in that kind of close relationship with you, that our cares, our concerns, our burdens, those of others that we know in the body of believers and those in this nation and this world, we could bring those. And knowing God, and knowing God that you want Thank you, God, for this message today. We needed to, thank you, God, for this message today. We needed to be reminded. Amen.